0: Decision 84 election night continues, sponsored by Manufacturers Hanover, the financial source worldwide, by the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, and by AT&T. We're reaching out in new directions. Now from the NBC News Election Center in New York, here is Tom Brokaw.
1: Good evening, everyone. It is now 8 p.m. Eastern time, and uh, a number of key states have closed their polls just in the last couple of minutes. Illinois, Massachusetts, Michigan, Missouri, New Jersey.
2: On November 6, 1984, America crowded around its TV screens to see who would become its next president. And in that NBC News clip I found on YouTube, you can hear Tom Brokaw rattling off states as their polls closed. It was really no contest. Incumbent Ronald Reagan won over his Democratic challenger, Walter Mondale, in a landslide. And people watched as those reports came in. But across the country, a whole world from Washington, D.C., people in the small town of Windsor, Colorado, were trying to wrap their heads around another news story. You see, Doris and Alan Sorensen were the town's local jewelers, and they had been for almost 30 years. They had a shop right on Main Street called Sorensen Jewelry. Doris would often be found standing behind the shops, glittering displays of jewelry and gems, and Alan would work behind the scenes, tinkering with broken watches and fixing loose ring settings. They were known as kind people, a quiet couple who largely kept to themselves. They didn't make waves in Windsor or headlines for that matter until November, 1984. The news spread quickly, as it's apt to do in a small town, and two days after it happened, it was confirmed in the pages of the town's weekly newspaper, the Windsor Beacon. Of course, it was plastered on the front page, but for continuity's sake, it was also tucked into the weekly crime roundup on page four. November 5th, 10.45 a.m. it read, Officer discovered the bodies of Alan and Doris Sorensen at their residence on Locust Street. They had been murdered. I'm Erin Udell, and you're listening to The Way It Was, a Podcast podcast. In this episode, I take on Windsor, Colorado's only cold case homicides. The unexplained, ice cold Halloween slayings of Alan and Doris Sorensen. Hey guys, it's Erin, and that sound is me doing what I do best, flipping through old newspapers. If you're listening to this, you've likely deduced that I enjoy history. This is a history podcast after all. And if you happen to listen to last month's Way It Was episode, then you also know that I have a weakness for Windsor. A small but growing community between Fort Collins and Greeley, Windsor, Colorado was where I got my start as a reporter at the weekly Windsor Beacon and those pages I'm flipping through in the background those are Windsor Beacon pages. You see since it's owned by the same company as the Coloradoan, the Beacon's archives live in Fort Collins in the Coloradoan's building. Because of that I'll often sneak away to look up something in the dusty pages of its archived issues and this time around I was looking at papers from the fall of 1984. There were stories from school board meetings and details about the town's upcoming annual harvest festival. There were a lot of engagement and wedding announcements. Then, there was the story about the murder.
1: And going through some of the reviews, it, this it had it, 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 it gained statewide attention. I'm not sure if there was any national attention placed on it because the media environment was much different back mm-hmm. then. You know, the 24-hour news cycle and, you know, online resources mm-hmm. and all that type of stuff.
2: That is Sergeant Aaron Lopez with the Windsor Police Department. I started my research with old newspapers, but my second stop in this process was meeting with Sergeant Lopez last month. We sat down one evening in the bowels of Windsor's police station to discuss Doris and Alan Sorensen the victims of Windsor's only cold case homicides. Because uh,
1: there were tips and, and people that were just sending messages and letters to the Chief Michaels at the time uh, about their shock and disbelief uh, with what had happened. And uh, Windsor, I don't remember, I don't know exactly what their population was, but it was, it was a... Uh, Prior to, like, the 90s, Windsor was a very small community. I mean, I'd venture to guess it had about 4,000 or 5,000 people at most mm-hmm. at that time. And I think it was pretty shocking to the populace and had everybody kind of up in arms and in fear, you know, in a way.
2: Windsor was a small town, and its residents looked out for each other. That's why when someone noticed newspapers piling up in front of Doris and Allen's tidy brick home, they called the police.
1: Well, what happened is, is uh, on the morning of November 5th, 1984, um, we had received a report that the Sorensen couple hadn't been heard from. And you know, they were pr- prominent business owners in town at a jewelry store on Main Street. It was 404 Main Street. was mm-hmm. where their shop was at. And um, that one of their friends hadn't seen or heard from them uh, since Halloween. And uh, that was unusual. So uh, Chief Michaels then, who was also the investiga- main investigator for the agency, because we were very small, Uh, went to the Sorensen's residence, and that's when he he made the discovery that they, uh, they had been in their house killed.
2: John Michaels was Windsor's police chief in 1984, and he had actually just taken over the position earlier that year. He'd go on to serve 32 years as chief, retiring in 2016. I passed a message along to him asking if he'd be interested in being a part of this episode, and he declined. But I don't blame him. You see, Michaels was the officer who took that call on November 5th. According to Beacon reports from that time, it wasn't unusual for the Sorensons to close their shop for a few days without notice, but they hadn't been seen for days. So, Michaels went to the Sorensons' house. Not noticing any signs of forced entry, he got in through their back garage door. Inside, he found Doris in an upstairs bedroom and Alan downstairs. They had both been bound and strangled. Their dog, which I've heard repeatedly was the closest thing the Sorensons had to a child, had also been killed. This had all happened on Halloween, sometime after they closed their jewelry shop that afternoon, police said. So they'd been like that in their house for five days before Michaels came upon the grisly scene. See, this case is beyond horrific, and if I were him, I probably wouldn't want to relive it either. I will tell you what Chief Michaels told reporters around that time though. He discussed this as a career case. He said he logged 16-hour days. The investigation took him to other states as he chased down leads. But the scene was already stale when he stumbled on it in 1984, and soon it would be cold as well. Here's Sergeant Lopez again. It seemed, at least from like an outsider's perspective, these 30 years later, that it seemed to go kind of cold kind of fast. Would that be? It, yeah, that,
1: okay. that's a very fair assessment. Um, you know, there was, with any high profile case, and I'm sure you guys see this in the news, lot. you get the crackpots that come out of the woodwork with. Uh, crazy theories or they heard from a friend who knows this guy who was dating this girl, you know, kind of like the Ferris Bueller thing, uh, where this information came from, but none of it ever panned out. And there were tips coming in, uh, up until the, uh, the nineties. Really? Yeah. Um, where people, you know, you'd have, you know, some guy in prison heard his cellmates Mm -hmm. brother or whatever, you know, that that, that had information, but none of the information, you know, there's, there's various aspects of the case that, um, that we use that are, that are known only to the investigators to kind of verify the veracity of, of some of the tips and information that comes in. Mm-hmm. And you can use those to, to quickly glean whether or not somebody actually knows information about the case or if it's misinformation. Okay. And we, none, none of those leaves this so far can't
3: out.
2: Okay. The case is still an open one. Sergeant Lopez made a point of reiterating that. It's open and the Windsor Police Department would love to solve it, he said. But it's currently classified as inactive. Lopez, by the way, was not in Windsor in 1984. He didn't join the department until 2006. And it wasn't until the spring of 2014 that he decided to take a look at the old Sorensen homicides.
1: I served as our detective uh, from 2013 uh, through most of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, there was a point where I was I was working some cases and I had kind of um, resolved a lot of the stuff that I was in my caseload and I had uh, a little bit of extra time that I wanted to try to do something with. I mean, I, you know, I take on small project everybody does, um, and I decided I was going to pull this one out and do a, a full on review of it and see if there was any new angles we could take and and uh, just refamiliarize, make sure we stay fresh, since so it is still a case that exists and a case we would love to, to solve.
2: What would it take to resolve this case 33 years later?
1: Well, um, it would take somebody coming forward with any information um, that would be able to corroborate some of those controlled details that we have uh, n- as known facts in the investigation uh, that would link direct knowledge and can say you know, who did it and why. Mm-hmm. One of the things we're running into that I noticed during my reviews is we, you know, there's obviously persons of interest and and, and people that we spoke to that we thought may have been involved, mm-hmm. and um, this case being as old as it is now, people are dying, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, they're just getting old, getting sick, whatever, because uh, 1984, um, you know, anybody who had, had done it then, you know, would, you presume be adult age, you know, could have been juveniles, but you never know, um, and... They're reaching that middle age time when people have heart attacks and, and, you know, poor lifestyles, catch up with you and things like that. So, as mm-hmm. uh, well, a matter of fact, I mean, um, Alan, the, the, the male victim in this case, was born in 1905. So if he was alive, I'd be 112 years old. That's crazy. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Doris, the uh, female victim, was, I believe, born in 1918. Mm-hmm. So she'd be 99.
2: Sergeant Lopez and I talk a bit more later in this episode about specifics of this case including leads that were publicly wondered about around Windsor, how crime scene investigations have changed since the 1980s, and of course, I had to ask him about DNA. But first, I wanted to chat about the elephant in the room, or in this case, the giant plastic tote in the room. When I was setting up for this interview, Sergeant Lopez excused himself for a second and came back lugging this giant clear box. From the outside, you could see binders and paper files neatly sandwiched inside. On it, there was a little label, Sorensen Homicide. It was the case file.
1: Weird, because this is much different than if we pulled a modern case file right. now. You see there's binders, folders. I mean, there's even loose items in here that mm-hmm. are little little trinkets and things that, that mm-hmm. were gathered during the investigation, but uh, it's it's probably the biggest, actually, that we've got just because of the technology time. This stuff, there's, yeah. there's, it's not digitized. Right. We have handwritten reports in here yeah. from 1984.
2: Now, I didn't get to see anything from the file. It is still an open investigation. But Sergeant Lopez pulled a few things from the box. They were pictures of Alan and Doris, and they were the first pictures I'd seen of the couple. When I started researching this case, even before I sequestered myself in the Beacon's archives, I did what all millennials do. I googled. I googled the Sorensons, and the only thing that came up was their listing on the Colorado Bureau of Investigations' online cold case database. There were no images attached, and to my knowledge, no other stories have been written on them for what must be decades. Because of that, I had no idea what they even looked like. The first picture Sergeant Lopez showed me was from the 1960s. In it, Doris and Alan are standing in front of a sea of trophies. As the town jewelers, they engrave trophies for Windsor's sports teams and school spelling bees. Doris is smiling in the picture, her dark hair swept up out of her face, and she's clutching the couple's dog at the time, a white poodle. She was likely in her early 40s then. Alan probably in his mid-fifties then, kept his hair neatly combed against his head. He's looking at something out of frame, and his mouth is set in a straight line. He strikes me as the more serious one. But beyond the black and white picture, I learn what Doris and Alan were like in real life. And I talk about who would want to hurt this sweet couple. And why. More on that after this break. You're listening to The Way It Was, a history podcast brought to you by the Coloradoan's Facebook Messenger alerts. Would you like to be the first to know when news breaks in northern Colorado? Or are you more of an entertainment junkie who would love to see the best options of things to do this weekend? Sign up for the Coloradoan's alerts on Facebook Messenger for a truly customized news experience. Visit Facebook.com Coloradoan and send us a message to get started.
4: Well, the first store that they had was actually on the south side of Main Street, and so it would be across the street from Duke. There was a a little store there that we called the Creamery that was kind of like a little grocery store, and then right next to that was where the Sorenson's um, store was, the jewelry store was. And, of course, when we were little, my grandparents lived right behind their store. Um, my grandmother did. And so we'd always run over to the creamery. But you always had to stop in at the Sorensons and say hi to Mr. and Mrs. Sorensen.
2: That's Cindy Vetter. When I was looking for people to talk to about the Sorensons, I posted that picture I just mentioned in a Windsor Facebook group. And I asked for stories. And I got them. Cindy was one of many people who commented quickly on the post, and she agreed to chat with me over the phone later.
4: She was raised in Windsor. Mr. Sorensen would always be very busy back, you know, he'd have on those magnifying glasses under the bright light, fixing something. He was always repairing something. And then, of course, Mrs. Sorensen, she would just, she loved when kids came in to see her and she would just let us look at everything and oh gosh you know there were diamonds there but i think what always caught my eye was birthstones i was i'm a january person so i loved the red garnets so anything that had my birthstone i always wanted to look at that and charm bracelets back in that day were a big thing so we'd always look at the charm bracelets and pick out things that we just thought were so beautiful and they had a lot of loose stones that you could look at And I remember they also had a rotating display case, and you're probably too young to remember these, but these had these glass display cases that you could push a button on the top, and then it had numerous shelves in that would go around in a circle, and you could see the different things that were on each shelf. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of those loose stones in there, and that was always just so beautiful to see. And we just... We'd go in there. I had, you know, all my little friends, you know, we'd go in and we'd just look at everything in there. Mrs. Sorensen, if we wanted to try something on, she would let us. And they were just wonderful, wonderful people. And then Were they, they the only across.
5: jewelry store in town that you know of?
4: Yes, they were oh, the okay. only jewelry store in town. And then across, the, and back then, Winter I mean, we had about 1,500 people in town. So you knew every person that lived in every house in every store that was in town. And then my dad um, ended up working in the post office for 27 years. And so, of course, we knew every single person in the whole town. In fact, when my husband and I got married in 1975, you couldn't not invite someone to the wedding because Dad knew everyone in town. So our wedding invitation was posted on the door of the post office. So everyone in town was (laughs) invited. Yes, so everyone was invited.
2: I loved that. The post office story, I think it fully captures the spirit of small town Windsor. Here's one more story from Cindy. She said she must have been six or seven at the time. After going up to the Poudre River with her family and finding a clear stone on its banks, she proudly marched it into Sorensen Jewelers that
4: following Monday, wrapped in a little cloth. And I walked in, and I told Mrs. Sorensen, I said, I think I found a diamond. I want Mr. Sorensen to look at this and tell me tell me if it is. And he took his glasses off and kind of looked back. And she turned around, and she goes, You want to come and look at Cindy's stone and see what she has? And so Mr. Um, Sorenson came, and he unwrapped my cloth real careful and picked it up. He goes, Oh, boy, that's sure pretty. That is sure a pretty stone but we better check and see what it is, because we don't usually find diamonds here in Colorado. And so he went back to his table, put on his magnifying glasses, and put it under the big light, just like if he were looking at a real diamond. He was he was definitely doing something just to make me feel good, because obviously he knew this wasn't a diamond. And he looked at it carefully and over and over and over, and He brought it back to me and set it back on my cloth, and he said, you know, this is a beautiful stone, but unfortunately it's not a diamond. It's just some type of cut glass, but it is a beautiful stone, and you should be very proud that you found this. (laughs) The
2: Sorensons were obviously sweet people, and as business owners on Main Street, they were also public figures too. But from what I've heard, they led a very private life, They didn't have parties. They didn't go to Chamber of Commerce meetings. They worked in their shop, and then they went home. If they helped someone, they didn't want the recognition. In a Beacon article right after their deaths, someone shared the story of a girl in their neighborhood who lost her grandfather. To make her feel better, Doris went to Manweiler Hardware on Main Street and anonymously purchased a bike for the little girl.
3: I remember them being uh, very private and like when we lived across the street from them they you didn't really see them outside their house too much
2: that's heather anthony and she's the fourth generation of manwilers to run the hardware shop she works there with her husband and mom janice glines who you'll hear in the background Sorensen jewelry was just on the street from manwiler hardware and janice and heather actually lived across from the couple on locust street for a while
3: And so um, I think they mainly just, you know, they did all of their public stuff at their jewelry store. They went home and, you know, you didn't see huge crowds heading to their house for parties or whatever. They socialized in their business Mm -hmm. and then they went home and they just kept to themselves.
2: While I was talking to Janice and Heather, I brought up the bike story. And as it turns out, that was Heather's bike. They sold it to Doris and delivered it anonymously to the little girl. Um, how long have, have you both lived in Windsor?
3: All our lives. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you remember anything of this magnitude happening?
3: Well, I know there was another murder, but I don't think it was um, as brutal as this one was. And after that, we had a run on lock sets and dead bolts. everyone was interested in securing their house because it scared a lot of people and one other fact that i do know from halloween because i used to trick-or-treat in the neighborhood my grandpa would take um, myself and one of my friends trick-or-treating and they always you know had their house dark on halloween and so we never went by their house but so it was just, you know, common for them on a Halloween not to have trick-or-treaters come to their door. And so if anybody had actually come up and, you know, been trick-or-treating, then maybe something would've been discovered mm-hmm. but it at wasn't that point. The, it, wasn't it wasn't out of the ordinary, to, the see ordinary to see them not having their lights on okay. on Halloween.
2: The nature of this crime, coupled with the fact that it happened on Halloween of all days, changed Windsor a little bit. In the responses I got from that Windsor Facebook group post, I heard from people who said they started locking their doors at night, a first for the small quiet town. And since it's still unsolved, there's obviously this air of mystery that still surrounds the case. While I was compiling interviews, I noticed that people were happy to talk about who Doris and Alan were but they were less apt to speak freely about who could have done it, or why. One thing kept coming up, though, as I was putting this podcast together. The burglary. You see, the Sorensons had a beautiful shop with a wide selection of expensive pieces. And almost an exact year before the murders, on the night of October 30th, 1983, or early that next morning, Allen and Doris's shop was burglarized. The thieves cut a hole in the roof of the building to get in, and they walked away with more than $27,000 worth of gold rings, loose diamonds, and precious gems. About 90% of that haul was recovered just a few months later, and seven people were arrested for the crime in February 1984. The three men who ended up being convicted for the crime were all in custody at the time of the Sorensen murders. Here's Sergeant Lopez again, chatting about this a bit further in a follow-up phone call. So
6: yes, uh, the jewelry store on Main Street was uh, burglarized. At, uh, there was no robbery um, because it was an overnight thing, so there was no people present, which wouldn't make it a robbery. It'd be a burglary. Oh.
5: Okay. Uh, okay. And so, to your knowledge, there was no connection to that crime in this one?
6: We investigated that angle and uh-huh. uh, did not come up with any solid evidence because the suspects who were charged in that burglary, uh, and there was also connections to other burglaries in Northern Colorado area involving those same suspects. They were in custody in uh, Larimer County Jail. At, okay. Time the the Sorens and Sorensens were killed.
5: Mm, okay.
6: Yeah. And then um, regarding the suspects, um, have we ever had any suspects identified in this case? No. There have been parties of interest that were looked into because mm-hmm. they had, you know, obviously we have one. Uh, you know, that would seem like a pretty good angle of the, the victims having previously been victimized a year prior. Mm. Um, And then there was also other killings that took place in, in, you know, the general time frame of those years here in the northern Colorado area. But Mm -hmm. no evidence was ever gathered that was able to uh, tie or even increase the level of interest of anybody in in this case in particular.
2: Mm -hmm. Don't worry. I also asked Sergeant Lopez about, you guessed it, DNA. I admitted to him that pretty much all of my knowledge of criminal investigations is what I've gleaned from Law and Order that does make
6: pretty much all police cringe because it's, it's nothing like that. And right. we, we do get asked them some questions that are completely out of the realm of possibility when we're doing investigations. But, uh, let's see here. You ask about DNA. So, um, back when this case took place, DNA was barely even known to science. Um, it wasn't used at the time in criminal investigations and, um, Some older cases like this can be reviewed and DNA can be pulled from some things that they originally didn't know to look for. Mm -hmm. Um, In this particular case, we have resubmitted items for DNA and have not had any luck on it.
5: Okay. And then, oh, the last question. So also in in the Beacon's first story on this, um, they reported that a key to the, the couple's jewelry store was missing, but nothing else was missing from their home. And nothing was taken from their store. Um can you confirm can, could you confirm that for me?
6: Um <clears throat> I can't confirm if anything was or wasn't taken from okay. the home, but there was no evidence of anything being stolen from the store. Okay. Yep.
5: All right. Um and then going off of that, um, I think one of the big big questions here is, you know, what could possibly be the motive for this sweet, you know, old couple being murdered in their homes has there have there ever been motives that have been publicly discussed or anything no you you know what
6: there haven't since we haven't gotten any any solid leads on suspects i mean one of the obvious ones that we had discussed before was the connection to the possible burglary but again we hadn't we haven't gotten any evidence or leads to substantiate that but that's Mm -hmm. the one that jumps out beyond that i mean it was a. a relatively mild-mannered couple that, you know, didn't do anything other than run a jewelry store in town. And so there there seems to be little in the way of motivation why anybody would want to kill this couple.
2: I went searching for someone who might have an idea of why Doris and Alan were murdered that night. When dealing with a decades-old story, I always looked to the journalists who worked behind the scenes during that time. And I found one. Gib Green was the publisher of the Windsor Beacon from 1974 into the 1990s. He knew the Sorensons well and said he often stopped into their shop to chat with them. They were welcoming people, he said, and unfailingly honest. Like Gib at that time, they were also fixtures of Main Street, which was kind of its own tight little community back in those days.
0: I think every one of us hope that there would be some guy in the state pen that would say, hey, I did that jewelry store thing up in Windsor. You know, Mm -hmm. we were hoping that would happen, but it never did. Um, I personally have a theory. I think it's as valuable as anybody's, or as valued as anybody's. Um, Soren God rest their souls, are great people, and... uh, They had, in my estimation, an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of diamond rings and loose diamonds in their store. And if you went in to pick out a wedding set, for example, Doris could always show you four or five bigger sizes of diamonds that could be put in that same setting. My suspicion is that someone, you know, did what they did for the Diamonds. The other thing that always made me wonder is Alan and Doris each took home each evening a briefcase with what I think was the most valuable stuff out of the safe, which and I saw it several times, was a bag of diamonds. Mm-hmm. And um, they took home, um, honestly, the day's proceeds. But, you know, very honestly, they had an extraordinary mm-hmm. amount of cash. They'd go buy a new car and they'd take a big old pile of $100 bills down and pay for the car.
4: Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: and uh, I know Doris told me we pay, we paid cash for our house. Well, I have an idea what that cash looked like. It was all greenbacks. I could well imagine that they would have had, you know, the, I mean, by today's standards, not a lot, but they would have had an awful lot of cash for that time period, as mm-hmm. well as diamonds. And I, I mm-hmm. think someone that they either sold a wedding set to or someone in the diamond business, or someone in the you know that sold them jewelry, tipped off somebody that uh, um, came into the store near closing time, and uh, they locked the front door and took Ellen and Doris home and worked them over and robbed everything they could get their hands on and left them dead.
2: I just want to pop in and reiterate that this is just a theory. And remember, Sergeant Lopez couldn't confirm if anything had been taken from the Sorensen home. But he did say nothing had been taken from their shop.
0: You know, I thought for sure there'd be some things that they could tie to other patterns that developed elsewhere in the state. And I figured it might take three or four years, but they'd solve it. But, you know, it it just remains one of those things that... uh, you wish someone had seen something that could have said something, you know? Uh, it kind of breaks your heart.
2: That seems to be the key to solving this case. Someone coming forward with a memory. Maybe it was something they saw outside the Sorensen home that night, or something they noticed that just seemed off. Something just out of the ordinary enough to remember, but small enough to dismiss as unimportant. Sergeant Lopez said the Windsor police want to hear from anyone who might know anything about this case. If you have something to share, please call the Windsor Police Department and ask for either Sergeant Lopez or Sergeant Shane Line. This case has been unsolved for almost 33 years. But that doesn't mean Windsor has forgotten. It hasn't forgotten how welcoming Doris was. How, instead of shooing little girls away from the display cases, she'd invite them in to moon over rings and charm bracelets, and even let them try some on. It hasn't forgotten Alan's dry wit, about his methodical way with watches, and how though he was a man of few words, he always chose those words well. Windsor remembers the trophies Alan engraved and the thoughtful gifts Doris would bestow upon her friends. And people remember that day in November, when Doris and Allen's newspapers stacked up a little too high, when the police were called to their house to check it out, and when, as the news spread around town, Windsor started locking its doors. I'm Erin Udell, and you just listened to the eighth episode of The Way It Was, a pod-past podcast, presented by the Fort Collins, Coloradoan. The Way It Was takes on a different Northern Colorado history topic each episode, so look for new episodes on the second Thursday of each month on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast on Apple Podcasts yet, give it a try and drop me a review through the app so I know how we're doing. I've also posted a small story to go along with this podcast on coloradoan.com and i have included some pictures of Alan and Doris working in their shop if you want to take a look. And if you like the work we're doing at the Coloradoan and want to subscribe, head to coloradoancom slash subscribe slash podcast. Again, coloradoancom slash subscribe slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, guys. I'll talk to you next month.